Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt. Today's guest is Kai Leitner. Kai is someone I've been wanting to talk to for a very long time for a number of reasons, and this turned out to be one of my favorite conversations I've had on the podcast, and I suspect many of you will feel the same. Kai is a professional climber who has been in the spotlight from a very young age. He emerged in the competition scene very early, winning his first sport climbing national championship at age 10 in 2010. In 2014, he won the Youth World Championships, becoming the first American lead world champion since 1995. And in 2015, at the age of 15, Kai became the open or adult lead climbing national champion in his first year of eligibility. In 2015, Kai also completed his first 9A or 514D with a quick ascent of Aravea in Margalef, Spain. So he is no stranger to hard rock climbing as well. In this conversation, we talked about how Kai discovered climbing and his early years in the gym and how he got into competition climbing. We also talked about an article that Kai wrote earlier this year reflecting on his struggles with an eating disorder how it started, and some of the lessons he's taken away from that. Kai is really interesting in that he has climbed hard at just about every size and body type imaginable. He's climbed 514 plus at 5'3", and more recently at 6'3". And that was an incredibly interesting conversation. We talked about the importance of flexibility and why Kai thinks it is crucial for taller climbers. And we talked about some of Kai's early racist encounters and getting the race talk from his mother at age seven and what it was like being the only black kid in climbing and some of the challenges of navigating a world that didn't always feel inviting. Kai also started his own nonprofit this year called Climbing for Change. And in this episode, we talked about Kai's motivation for starting it and some of the projects he's currently working on and his mission to make our industry a more inclusive environment and to help open doors for those who are facing many of the same challenges that he has faced along the way. As I said, this is a really good episode. I think there's a lot to take away from this one. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Kai Leitner. Like we do it, like we do it. Hey, Kai. Hey. How's it going? Hello. How are you, sir? I'm sorry. Hold on. Give me one second. <laughs> um, ap- apologize for being late. That's I was okay. I was rushing home as fast as I could. Yeah. No, I know how it goes. You're trying to get your workout done. Do you have a good session? I did have a good session. Um, we had a, a well, I joined in on a team training practice and we did a, a session on the tension board, which is like my second time I've ever used a tension board and I don't hate it. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. What about? I don't, I don't typically like like moon boards, hang uh, uh, tension boards because like I find that they lack creativity hmm. a lot of the time, which is like the like my thing, like my climbing style. And so I'm like, well, like, 
I, it's kind of boring. But then I realized that because I usually use a lot of creative like sequences to, to do things that I kind of lack some of the power that I should have. Mm. <laughs> so I was like, well, maybe I should train this more. Hmm. And so I trained with some of the other kids and it was like really humbling because these <laughs> these kids that like, yeah, these kids were just kicking my ass on this wall. It was really terrible. <laughs> Little tension board mutants. Yes. I was like, how are you so good at this? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but then like if you put us on like competition boulders or like regular boulders and I'm fine, right? Like I'm back on my playing field. But as soon as you put me on the tension board, it's like ugh, my it's like my powers are neutralized. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting how much room is there for creativity in competition boulders or more i guess conventional gym boulders a lot you think so a okay. lot and that's well i think that that's what makes it interesting because i feel like the climbs are set to where there are multiple ways to, to solve it and especially when you set with like volumes and such it's like you leave so much surface area to where there's just so many ways to solve the problem hmm like they sort of may have the preferred way, but when you give me 20 holds and then like, I mean, I can figure it out. <laughs> Interesting. So are you going to mix the tension board into your routine from now on? Yeah, I think I'm going to start for sure. I'm okay. like, I need this because one day there's going to be a move that I can't just finesse my way around and I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> So let me, let me, let me at least try. Well, you have come a long way in your climbing without, without having to face that problem. It seems <laughs> you've done yes, some pretty hard I stuff. I remember like two years ago, right before, um, combined nationals two years ago, Shane was like, you do realize that we're going to have to start trading fingerboarding. Right. And I was like, yeah, I knew this day was going to come. I just was really waiting for it not to. <laughs> so Two years ago was the first time I ever created a hangboard, uh, tr like training. Oh, and it was like the worst. It was the worst. <laughs> I was like, "This is so boring." <laughs> <laughs> Have you stuck with it? Um, I mean, I do it on and off. I feel like now I'm more consistent because only gave me more time to like do the boring stuff. Mm. But before, no. I mean, like, I think after combining nationals that year, I think I stopped doing it because mm. I, I didn't have an incentive to. Yeah. <laughs> have, did you, during that time, did you find any ways to make it more uh, palatable? <laughs> Not really. I mean, I, music, <laughs> like, I, I like would create playlists and music to listen to. And I was like, I could I couldn't do it alone. Like, uh -huh. I honestly think Shane would have to be there to like make me laugh or entertain me. Because if he was not there, I would find a way, an excuse not to do it. What is your go-to training music? My go-to training music? Genre, <laughs> favorite artists, anything? That's is it, hard. Is it, I, it, it depends on the mood I'm in. Okay. So like, I have a few. Like I have some that are like super confident. Like, and then I'll have like a like a... Like a um like an Afrobeats playlist. I'll have like a reggae, like Caribbean music playlist. Um, like it just depends on the mood I'm feeling. Okay. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't listen to the same playlist every day. I don't like. I mean, there's there's a, there's value in a routine, but when it comes to music, I don't like being stuck in like one playlist. Mm. Like I need I need to change up a little bit. Okay. Or I'll get bored. Or like because you feel like you can't replicate the same psych feeling every day all the time from the same playlist like it's it, it's great for the first few plays but then when you hear the same thing for like months at a time it's like 
Mm. It, it loses its its sting, you know? Yeah, diminishing returns. Yeah, it's like when you overplay your favorite song, eventually it's going to get old. <laughs> Well, that is a surprisingly good segue. I actually wanted to kick things off by asking you about your Halloween costume from this last year. Oh, my goodness. You you shared some photos of it on Instagram, and it was very thorough and impressive. (laughs) Uh, Well, tell me about your Halloween costume. It's funny because I take my Halloween costumes very seriously and I always have. It's just that usually I can like I'll wear them to a party or I'll put it on my close friends. But this time around, I was like, I'm stuck in the house. I'm too scared to be around people. And so but I really want to participate And like if I'm going to wear an outfit, somebody's going to see it. So I was like, I'm going to go all out. And I'll just post it on social media. That should be fun. And it was it was funny because I was like, yeah, I, I was so excited because I always have a theme like um, where my, my theme has been for the last couple of years. I think when I was, my freshman year, I did a Magic Mike theme with okay. my friends. OK, um, my sophomore year. Who was sophomore year? Oh, Lord. I think that was like just a Spider-Man theme. And that was funny. Yeah, but then this year, yeah, I decided I wanted to be Tupac. <laughs> and you, like you said, you did go all out. I mean, you had the the tattoos. You had, I think, multiple outfits for the photo shoot. Yeah, I mean, I'm a massive, I'm a really big Tupac fan. Okay. I've kind of always wanted to do a Halloween-inspired costume. I mean, in my graduation speech, uh, when I graduated valedictorian, I gave a Tupac quote at the end of my speech. Do you remember what it was? <laughs> uh, absolutely. When the, <laughs> oof, wait, it's it's a little rough. It's been a few years. But... <laughs> it's okay, we can fact check it. Never mind. Wait. You oh, can wrap shoot. it, too, if you want. Well, I mixed two. I mixed two quotes. I mixed the Ti quote and then I mixed the Tupac quote. Um, I had to give the government names in my speech, though. Um, Tupac Shakur, and um, oof, Lord, it's been a while. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, so I remember. So no matter how hard it gets, stick your chest out, keep your head up, and handle it. Mm. That's what I did. Mm. That's what it was. Good one. And uh, the the T.I. quote was, never mind what haters say, ignore them till they fade away. No mm. matter how hard it gets, stick your chest out, keep your head up and handle it. That's <laughs> what, that's, those are two quotes that I, I combined together. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, remind me, how old were you when you started climbing? I started climbing when I was six years old. Okay. Um, in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Okay. So that's that's pretty young. But I was curious when I saw your costume, one of the questions that popped to mind was, who were some of your early role models, maybe outside of climbing? Who did you look up to when you were a kid? Outside of climbing? Yeah. Interesting. So I feel like I love the Olympics. I love watching the Olympics. I've, I've watched it ever since I was a little kid, and it's like my earliest sports memories. And so some of the people I looked up to were like Usain Bolt, uh, Michael Phelps, like those kind of athletes. Hmm. I used to, I know this is such a controversial topic now, but back then it wasn't, but I used to really like Chris Brown's music. Okay. <laughs> when I was a kid, I actually have a vision board from like 2005 when I was in first grade or kindergarten. And in the right hand corner, it asks who I want to be when I grow up. And it's a picture of Chris Brown's like first <laughs> album cover. And I always look back at it and I'm like, whew, that did not age well. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, luckily uh, your dream didn't come true in that case, huh? I know, I know. Because I mean, th- that was before all that happened. So uh-huh. at the time, he was like really big. Uh huh. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so funny. So I guess like those are just a few people that I looked up to. I mean, obviously, I mean, if I had to look to my my home, my my biggest inspiration would definitely be my mom because like mm. I, I mean, she's a single mother and I watch her do everything as a kid and i didn't quite realize that she was doing everything i just knew that she was always there uh-huh. and i always knew that she, like it was like someone that i could rely on so she would make me breakfast drive me to school do her nine to five job come home help me with my homework drive me to the gym belay me for three hours a day bring me home make me dinner and then prepare me for bed and she did that like every day for my entire childhood since I was seven or so until I was 17. <laughs> wow. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And as I got older and I could actually appreciate all that she did, it was like, like, wow, like I have no idea, especially as an adult now, looking at my schedule and my timetable, I'm like, I don't even understand how you fit all these into 24 hours. That doesn't <laughs> even make any sense. <laughs> she sounds like a superhero herself. <laughs> no, she's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, I want to come back to that. I actually do want to ask you some questions about uh, your mom and your relationship with your mom. But I, I want to hear the story about how you discovered climbing. So you grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I and uh, we talked a few weeks ago and you told me this hilarious story. And I just have a note here that says flagpole. <laughs> yeah. Um so I found climbing. Well, I always climbed everything. Before I could walk at daycare, the counselors used to have to put me in a, a baby gate away from the other kids because I would climb out of it and climb into other babies' cribs when they were crying. <laughs> um, I used to eat lunch on the basketball hoop in our driveway. Before. On the basketball hoop? Yep, on the basketball hoop as a toddler when I was like four years old. And my aunt used to live in an apartment <laughs> complex. And she lived on the, on the third floor. And I would climb her third floor balcony up to the fifth floor balcony and talk to our neighbors. And she would freak out because she thought I was lost. So I always, <laughs> I, I always climbed things. And one day my mom was at her job. And she brought me to work. And as she was leaving and talking to her boss, I decided to climb the 50-foot flagpole that was behind her that flew the state flag. And a lady walked by, saw me at the top of this flagpole, and kindly got me down. (laughs) And as as she did, she wrote the address to the local climbing gym on a sticky note and gave it to my mom. And she was like, (laughs) you should try rock climbing because this is not safe. And so, and so like the next day after school, my mother brings me in and she's like, he's climbing on my furniture. He has ADHD. I need to get him into some activity. Please help. And so <laughs> the, the man at the front desk happens to be my coach to this day, Shane Messer. And he got me up on a top rope and put me on all the walls in the gym and I'll never forget, it was a purple climb on the steepest wall. <laughs> I believe it probably was like a 5'9". But I had climbed every other angle except for that one. And I tried to get to the top, but I couldn't get past the last angle change. And I sat there grabbing the two jugs, and I cried for 10 minutes. Oh, wow. And 
And Shane was like, does he want to come down? And my mom was just like, yeah, Kai, come down. But I refused to come down because I hadn't made it to the top, but I was also too scared to do the next move. Mm. So I would just sat there. And then eventually, I think I did a couple more moves and fell. But Shane was like, wow, like he has a lot of endurance. I think he might be really good. <laughs> so I came back every day that week uh, to try that climb until I did it. And then I just became obsessed with the sport from there. Do you remember what it felt like going into that commercial climbing gym for the first time? Well, the the gym that I walked into for the first time was not a commercial gym. Okay. It was actually a renovated um, warehouse that had regrind. Uh, that's a throwback for a lot of the older uh, climbers who were like, in the first kind of climbing gyms. So basically regrind is like tore up tires. And like if you were a kid and you played in regrind, you would always like sneeze black stuff. <laughs> <laughs> because it was so gross and oh. trapped in so much dirt oh, and the walls were like maybe 17 feet tall like not tall at all like there's bouldering walls that are comparable at this point um and so yeah I, I mean i didn't grow up in a modern gym at all uh -huh. um as a matter of fact for the first five years of my competition career i trained on the same climb before nationals every year because I knew that that one climb was hard for me. And they didn't reset that climb for six years. Wow. What was the nature of the climb? Like, what what was it? Just like a hard, steep lead roof or something? Actually, no. It was like on the back. It was kind of slabby, but it had some powerful moves. And I were a bit reachy, and it was hard for me. And I, I knew that if I could do that climb, that I would feel ready and prepared for competition because <laughs> it always gave me a hard time. Yeah. And I did that same climb every year for five years straight. <laughs> was there a correlation? Did you send it every time before nationals? Or did you notice that when you did send it, you did better? Or I think that it definitely gave me a confidence boost. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, my, my, I mean, That's I don't so quite, re I don't quite remember that much of it, but I just know that, um, I mean, most of my training back then was like either circuits on a wall or like climbing some of the, like, or convincing the setters to create a climb or two for me and doing laps on that. Mm. Like that's basically how I built endurance and got fit when I was little. Mm. Did you have a coach and a team right away? Um, no. So there was a small team, but a lot of the kids on the team hadn't been successful at that level yet. And the coaches were just as new as the kids. And so a lot of the times for me, if I wanted to get good training, I had to go to a remote coach. So we would drive six hours either to Atlanta or seven or eight to uh, Washington, D.C. or sorry, or to Maryland. And we would get uh plans from different coaches and come back and my mom would interpret them to a seven-year-old level and we will <laughs> yeah and we will work through those from there and that's wow. basically how i got all my training because there was just there wasn't a lot of just resources in the area for competition climbers sure yeah yeah so how how did the competition climbing come in then like how did you first encounter competition climbing and, and was that something that appealed to you right away um, I mean, I've always been a pretty competitive kid and I had ADHD as a kid and I tried a million other sports. I tried basketball, football, soccer, and I wasn't bad at them, but none of them really held my attention. But for some reason, when I went to a climbing gym, I could sit there for hours at a time and was completely enthralled by 
solving these puzzles that were in front of me. And it was such an anomaly for me. And my mom recognized it as an anomaly too. And so she was like, I guess this is the sport we're stuck with, huh? So, (laughs) and so, um, I think it was just a natural progression for me. Once I felt like I was good at it and my coach told me that there were competitions, I wanted to go. And my first year of competing, I made it to nationals. I think I placed like 30th or something, but I I made it there. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember after competing, um, the national champion in my category was actually in um, in my state, and he lived, he trained at a, a gym not far from me, and so it was cool because I was able to see up close, like okay, that's what the best looks like hmm. for my age group, so that's what I need to be able to achieve to be good as well. Hmm. And I feel like that was really good for me. <laughs> okay, how long have you competed at this point? I've been competing for. Oof. Well, since I was seven and I'm 21, so 14 years. Okay. So a long time. Is there a single competition that stands out as, as a highlight or are there a couple that really stand out to you? Um, I would say probably my, my most memorable competitions were, well, that's a hard question. Um, <laughs> You've done a lot of them. <laughs> I've done a lot of competitions, probably, um, one one for sure is when I won uh, the Youth World Championships when I was 14. And that was pretty special, not just because I won, but our head coach, Claudio, is a really stone-faced Romanian who doesn't really show a lot of emotion. It could be kind of, like, um, harsh. <laughs> but I got uh, when I won, I got him to cry. And it's like... <laughs> It was legit my claim to fame for the, for the longest. I would tell all the kids, like, guys, Claudio cried. And they're like, I don't believe it. No, it's not true. I'm like, I'm serious. Because I was the first American in 25 years to win a title in, in the lead discipline. And so hmm. it was a pretty big deal for for the country at the time. And I think by after that, um, the next year, we started winning a few more titles. But I was the first one. And so Claudio was, like, really, really happy. <laughs> How old were you? for that one? I was, I was 14. Okay. <laughs> that is incredible. And then where did outdoor climbing fit in throughout that progression of your climbing? Were you mostly indoors for many years? And when did you first go outdoor rock climbing? Um, see, when I first started out, I mean, I started out as an inner city kid. And for me, just stepping into the climbing world in general was really unorthodox and outside of my comfort zone. And so outdoor climbing just felt like just completely out there. Like I would never want to do that. It was super scary to me, like being in unknown terrain. Um, But as I was competing, Actually, one of my um, competitors, Drew Wana, mm-hmm. he we, we are we were born two days apart, and so we competed against each other every year. And he will always ask me, him and his father, like, when are you going to go outside? Like, when are you going to climb rocks? And I was like, I'm not really interested. And they constantly made fun of me for years <laughs> until finally we were sitting in a chair one year, and I was like, fine, I'll I'll go out, I'll go to the the New River Gorge and and see how I feel and. I went out and it was really scary for me, <laughs> but I decided that like, okay, like I, I, I can do this. And I, I really appreciate 
that experience because it exposed me to a completely different side of the sport. Hmm. I mean, it was just, it's different because competitions is all about grinding and pressure and um, like getting to the end result. Whereas I feel like climbing outside is about like enjoying the whole experience, not just the climbing, but where you are in the context of, of you being a part of nature. Hmm. It's a really like tranquil feeling that I really can't compare it to anything else. So I'm, I'm happy that they got me into that. <laughs> did you feel that that first day or did that take time? Um, I definitely think that that was not my first thought. My first thought was like, wow, like I'm in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I hope Smokey the Bear doesn't come and eat me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because there's so many other factors that I didn't think of that my mother was worried about. Because I was, I was a kid. I was maybe 10 or 11. So I was more so worried about like the bugs and like just being in this unfamiliar territory. Whereas my mother was just like, okay, like we're the only black people in a 50 mile radius huh. so we we gotta be able to navigate these spaces carefully like carefully planning out what gas stations we want to go to making sure that we stay away from the cars and the areas that proudly fly confederate flags you know just or, or areas that have racist root names or racist crag names or people who are just racially insensitive hmm. it was it was really um like nerve-wracking for her and hmm. i'm glad that she kind of protected me from that reality for so long uh it, it definitely took me to get older to kind of realize all that yeah is that something you just realized on your own as you got older or is that something she eventually started talking to you about well being a part of a black family you kind of have to have the race talk at some point just to be safe and to understand where you fit in society and unfortunately, that kind of came. My my first talk came around seven, but then my first serious talk came probably when I was twelve, when I had my first racist encounter. Okay. Um, and that actually happened on my way to a climbing area when I was twelve, and uh, I basically got stopped while walking out of a gas station, used the bathroom, and was accused of stealing something. It was searched. Oh, wow. um, the clerk basically searched my entire body, concluded that I didn't steal anything and let me go. And I was completely devastated. And it was right around the time where Trayvon Martin, the, his case was all across the news. And so my mother basically had to not only explain that to me, but then show me what was going on in the news and explain how that related to my experience. Wow. Thanks for sharing that story. That is that's fascinating. Yeah. I'd love to ask if you if you can remember what were some of the components of that race talk when you were seven. What did that look like? Well, the, when I was seven, it was more so. So what what ended up happening at that age was I was playing with my neighbor, and he lived two houses down from me. And instead of you know walking into the street and going to his house, we found that it was easier to just hop the fences between our houses to okay. meet each other. Uh-huh. And, and so we would do that and keep in mind we were like small seven-year-olds but one day i was at his house and my mother called his mom and asked me to come home and once i got there my mother had tears in her eyes and she was basically telling me that i couldn't hop fences anymore and i didn't really understand why or how she knew but then she sat me down and explained to me that i can't do the same things that my friends do because unfortunately like my actions won't be perceived the same wow and it was a, a really like 
crazy moment for me because that was kind of the first time like the world it sounds really cliche but like the world came in color for me because it was mm. like oh like i had never thought about the fact that me and mason were a different color sure like, i was like he's just my friend but then i thought about it and i was like yeah like he, i guess he is lighter than me and i didn't even know what really race was until i was forced to have that conversation and little did i know that my mother had gotten a phone call about her son who was hopping fences ah okay yeah i was gonna ask that someone flagged that for her and and she had to yeah. talk, sit down and talk to you about it yeah my mother got a concerning phone call basically saying that her, her child was hopping fences and that it needed to stop even though there were two of us i was the only one that was profiled in the moment mm. how do you think about outdoor rock climbing now how does it fit in now versus competition um, I think that for me, outdoor rock climbing, like, I mean, outside of the context of the pandemic, like in general, like outdoor <laughs> rock climbing is, is the, the break from the stress of competitions. Okay. It's like I, the competition season goes for so long and it's so demanding on your body because when you go in the comps, you have to train to be good at every trick because you never know what you're going to encounter or what the setters are going to set in that moment. However, when you go outside, not only can you pick and choose the climbs you want to do, but you can train specifically for whichever climb you want to do, whichever mm. project you set out to do. And so it, for me, it's always been like a simpler experience and much more one where you enjoy the process instead of just like stressfully training for one moment mm. and hoping that it works out. Mm -hmm. Are you still as driven with competitions as you used to be? I mean, there's ups and downs for sure. I think that any competition climber can attest to that. I feel like a, f a couple of years ago, I definitely decided I decided that I wanted to take a break from the sport for a multitude of reasons. But because I had compete been competing for over a decade, and you know it was exhausting, and I was about to step into my freshman year of college, and I basically that was basically being forced to choose between like pursuing the Olympics, pursuing competitions and going off to college on a full scholarship. And I was like, well, I'm just going to take my full scholarship and take a break because I felt like I needed it hmm. because when, I mean, you're constantly putting your body through so much pressure. N nobody can sustain that for a long period of time, I believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where are you going to school? So I'm going to school in Boston. I go okay. to a school called Babson College, which is a school for entrepreneurship there. And that's the, that's what I wanted my major to be, uh, like business management. Okay. What's the status of that now with COVID? I mean, I'm still I'm still taking classes because I wanted to graduate on time. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'm just studying remotely. Okay. That's really cool. So, I mean, if if people aren't familiar, you've also at this point started your own nonprofit. So that's very in line with uh, with what you're studying, which is. Very interesting, and I, I definitely want to come back to that, but there's a couple things I'd love to ask you about first before we come back to Climbing for Change. One of the things I was most interested in asking you about leading up to this conversation was actually an article that you published on your blog back in March, I believe, called mm -hmm. Reflections on My Rock Climbing Journey. And uh, it's an incredibly vulnerable and honest article that you wrote about a struggle about your struggles with uh restricted eating basically in in competition climbing and it's an article that really resonated with me and there's uh 
I mean, it's incredible, frankly. And uh, there's a couple things I, I wanted to ask you about it. I thought we could start, if you're open to it, with me reading a paragraph from that post. Uh, sure. So this is near the beginning of the article. You wrote, Climbing has given me moments in my life I will never forget, like being the first American in 25 years to win a world title in lead climbing and standing on top of the podium in my first year eligibility at adult nationals. I will also never forget staring at the scale before every competition, praying that the number it read was low enough for me to feel confident in my ability to climb my best. I will never forget rationing out the amount of calories I felt I could afford to eat before practice so I didn't feel too fat to climb. I will also never forget the moment my doctor told me I was a fraction away from liver failure and I needed to eat more if I wanted to survive. After that, you go into when you first started climbing and you shared just basically this impression that was ingrained in you from early climbing experiences and, and being the tallest kid on your team. Can you, can you tell me about that? Like how that started? Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a really, um, I have not reread that essay. Actually, as a matter of fact, I never even read it over when I wrote it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I just typed it out. And then I saved it in the memo, and then I decided to post it. <laughs> I, I've literally not read it over since I wrote it, but but yeah, like I when I was a kid, I feel like this is an issue that you encounter a lot of times when you're in a strength to weight a strength to weight ratio sport, especially when you're dealing with young kids. I feel like you see the similar issue in gymnastics or in other sports where kids start really young and train at an adult level. For me, watching my idols, the people who were at the top of the sport and what they look like, there was always this image of like, this is what you need to be and what you need to look like in order to succeed. And that sentiment was kind of echoed through my coaches as well. Hmm. Um, a lot of times it was like, okay, if it's strength to weight, then you need to weigh less and be stronger. And so like they would kind of make, sometimes make fun of my appearance. And I was always a, a bigger athlete. I, I mean, I was always not only just taller than the other kids, but I weighed more in general. I mean, if you look at my family, like no one in my family is small. We all have pretty stocky builds. And so I was meant to be that way, but it didn't match the standard of the sport at the time. And so because of that, my coaches made a conceited effort to kind of point that out at every possibility that they could, whether it was like at snack time and making small comments along the lines of like I needed to eat less or saying that like my butt was bigger than the other kids or being impressed that I got a climb despite the fact that I was this size. Oh, like man. all those things kind of stick to you as a kid. And you realize, like, okay, like, I have these huge goals, but I can't get there until I deal with this issue that's always been pressing since I was young. And so, I mean, once I got to a, a age where I could compete at an international level, and at the time, there were just not many Americans who were competing at that level or were successful at that level. And so I felt like I needed to do something drastic in order to be better. And for me, it was like, okay, well, I, I need to address the fact that I'm bigger than all the other kids. So I started like eating less and doing everything that I could to make myself smaller. And honestly, like I didn't even notice how small I was. I just hmm. knew that my climbing was getting better. 
And as the numbers got lower, I just knew that, okay, that that means that I should be climbing harder. And eventually, as that persisted, it just kind of just got out of control. Hmm. I have a note here from that post, that blog post, where I think you said at one point you were five foot eight and 95 pounds. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and climbing really hard. Um, yeah, that's very, very small at five, eight. I know you're much taller than that now, but, um, yeah, I want to share another short paragraph if I may mm-hmm. later in the article you wrote as puberty came along, I got taller, my muscles got bigger and the number on the scale continued to go up for most guys. This is great news, but for me, it felt like failure, failure to hold up my end of the bargain. Failure to be dedicated enough to make it stop. Failure to make the people around me happy. What was it that eventually allowed you to see what was going on at more surface value? Like what what allowed you to kind of finally zoom out and snap out of it? I think a couple things. Like A, your body can't sustain that level of restriction for that long it's eventually going to crash and i definitely felt that happening but even before then the the one thing that kept me from bringing it i mean i was already bringing it pretty far but the one thing that probably kept me alive was the fact that my my mother was so close to me Hmm. like i said she's part of every piece of my life whether it's my school my homework my training my eating and so she recognized when my habits were, were changing and she didn't take my words for face value and recognize like that, okay, like this looks like it could be an issue. Like he's getting way too small. And so she kind of took it upon herself to bring me to the doctor, get me checked out, realizing that I was being unhealthy and making conceited effort to make sure that like, that I was okay. And to see how concerned she was really kind of snapped me into, okay, well maybe this is a problem. And eventually I realized, okay, like maybe this isn't a sustainable way to get better because I feel like, yeah, like, I mean, I I wasn't progressing at the level that I had before. And I feel like in anything in life, the quick way isn't always the most sustainable way. It usually isn't (laughs) the most sustainable way. Mm -hmm. And so I had to just find a better way to be better. How do you think about that now? I'm in a much, much, much better place than I am now. And I do think of food in a much healthier way. But I mean, because this is something that happened to me when I was really young. And so those thoughts, I feel like never 100% go away. Hmm. Like if I'm eating like a dessert or something, it's always like the small thoughts in the back of my head that creep in saying like, (laughs) maybe I shouldn't do this or maybe I shouldn't do that or eat that. But I, I definitely have a much better handle on that than I did when I was younger. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, now you're, how tall are you? You're 6'3"? I'm 6'3". Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're built like LeBron James. I mean, you look jacked and super strong and you're climbing super hard. So that's another thing I'd be really interested in talking to you about. Uh, when we were talking on the phone a few weeks ago, you mentioned that you've kind of climbed hard in every body type imaginable. <laughs> like, like you've climbed 514 plus uh, at 5'3". Um, just being a stick at the time. And you've done that again at 6'3", um, having a lot more muscle and just looking like a strong athlete. So I- I'd love to to hear about that. Have you had to 
kind of intentionally change your climbing style or has that happened kind of naturally as your climbing has adapted as your body's changed? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my climbing style has changed drastically since I was a kid. You know, when you're carrying more weight, more muscle, your body is just built differently. Like a lot of things have to change, whether it's like your technique has to get better, your your process has to become more tight because I can't afford to not warm up well or not do my due diligence and making sure like all my muscles are balanced because I'm much more prone to injury than I was when I was 13. And so there, there is a lot that, that has changed in my climbing for sure. Hmm. But I think that now my fitness feels way more sustainable than it was when I was a kid. Hmm. I feel like I, I mean, I definitely feel like I have to work harder, but I feel like I've now found like a, a better routine in a healthier way of maintaining that level. Hmm. Do you feel like your hardest climbing is still ahead of you? Absolutely. I, I definitely don't think I've maxed out on my potential. Yeah. It sure doesn't seem like it. <laughs> you're, you're crushing and you're climbing things really quickly, it seems like. So that's awesome. That's a competition climber in me. I, okay. I, I hate projecting. I hate projecting climbs. And so I was like, if I can't do it in like a few days, then clearly I'm not strong enough. So I need to go back in the gym and train. Like I, cause I'm just like, I can't, I just can't mentally stay focused enough to hmm. try something for months and like devote my life to a climb. Like that's, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> what is the longest that you've tried something that you've sent outside? I don't know. Maybe it was Aravea. Which uh, it's a 14D I climbed when I was 15. I think that one took me a week and a half, <laughs> and that and that's, that's an amazing. interesting story too. Because in the middle of the trip, I I got um, tonsillitis because I didn't continue taking my medicine from when I was sick before earlier in the year. Okay, and so we had to like look around this village and find a chemist to mix together the antibiotics that I needed to treat my, my tonsillitis. It was terrible. <laughs> but luckily I got the climb done before the trip was over. So that was nice. I mean, I only had a, I only had a spring break to do it. So <laughs> that's incredible. Uh, tell me how your training volume has changed as your body's changed. That was really interesting. Oh, um, I just feel like, it's interesting because I feel like when I was the kid, I didn't have to focus on the small things as much, mm. like the the body maintenance, the the training my fingers or making sure that I'm training flexibility. A lot of that came really naturally to me and it comes really naturally for a lot of kids. Uh, but And I literally, when I was a kid, I just climbed. I climbed a lot. I climbed climb for maybe six hours a day, like forever, but I would just climb. And now that I'm older, I'm like, okay. My body cannot withstand six hours in the gym at one time. I might be able to do a solid two to three. And any time after that is just me making sure that my body is healthy. So hmm. I'll do like fingerboarding to make sure my fingers are not only strong, but like durable. I'll make sure that I'm stretching or that I'm doing shoulder mobility to make sure that my muscles are, are fitter and, and just more stable. That's like, oh, that's really the, the biggest change okay. in my climbing since I was younger. Do you keep a, like a weekly training routine now or, or does it ebb and flow? What does your typical week of training look like? Well, I usually train like five days a week. 
um, like two days on and then one day off, which is also different from when I was a kid. Cause when I was a kid, I used to do three days on and one day off. But um, I'll train those two days, and one of them will be a more power-based day, like the, where I'm basically just training and bouldering, like just different forms of bouldering, whether it's four by fours, whether it's a power endurance circuit, whether it's tension boarding. Um, and then the other day will be my lead day with my mom. So then we'll go to the gym and she'll belay me and I'll just do laps in the lead wall. Okay. That, that, I feel like for me, that helps me balance my fitness. Cause I, I find it so weird cause people will train like one discipline at a time. And I've never done that because I'm like, I feel like I'm, I will never feel my fittest just doing one. Hmm. Like I, I feel like I have to do both because they both carry different benefits. Right. And you, yeah, you kind of need both on most rock climbs. Yeah. And that's, that's how I've always been. That's how I've always trained. Like, okay. I always train both bouldering and lead at the same time. That's interesting though. So on your power day, it sounds like you still shift more towards power endurance a lot of the time with like four yeah. by fours and circuits and stuff. Are you also doing like any limit bouldering or hard bouldering on those days? Yeah. Uh, so when I was younger, I used to do that with Shane. Now I'll like do it with some friends. I think that like have, those are the days where I really like to like have a partner or like someone like my, my age or my ability level to, to climb with, to push me. I think that's really, really important. But yeah, like I'll, I'll try to train at my limit, but I've, I've always climbed at such a high volume that it doesn't bother me doing like four by fours in the same day as doing limit bouldering training. Cause like, I don't know. I've always had the fitness for it. Okay. Okay. You've mentioned Shane a couple of times. Who is Shane? Shane is my coach. Okay. At the beginning, when I told the story about um, how I got into climbing and my mom begging the man at the front desk to get me into the sport, Shane was that man. Okay. So Shane has been <laughs> with me since literally day one. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And yeah, we started, we started climbing. Well, we started climbing at a similar time. We've kind of grown together in the sport. And so it's been really cool. <laughs> Very cool. And you're 21 now? Yeah, I'm 21. Okay. When we talked the other day, I asked you who some of your climbing role models were, like who you looked up to the most. And the top of your list, it sounds like, was Adam Andra. Absolutely. And you had some really interesting reasons why. Can you elaborate on that? Um, Absolutely. So I... People often ask me, like, who do I look up to? Like, who are my idols? And I feel like there's a lot of people in this sport whose ability I admire. Like, so many, like Krisharma and Daniel Woods, and a lot of them, like, they're extremely talented athletes. But I feel like when you go as far to say, like, who your idols are, those are, like, the people who inspire your climbing style, ability, and who you would want to emulate. And for me, that person's always been Adam Andre because, I mean, not only is he the best, but he's the closest in my size like he's probably one of the taller climbers on the circuit and he's always managed to make it work and he really approaches the sport from a really athletic perspective like he tries to be the most balanced climber he can and he spends so much time focusing on flexibility and mobility because as a taller climber you kind of don't have a choice if you want to be able to fit in some of those boxes that setters create for you and he's just also always been so inspiring to me he continues to push the sport and he's someone that like i've adapted a lot of my training programs from hmm. so I, i'll never forget like we were in the same house in Canada for a, a training camp. And one thing that he did that stuck with me is that he made sure that every morning, no matter what was going on or where he had to be, he always made time to stretch for an hour in the morning. Wow. And 
I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like, I need to do that too because if that's what he's doing, then I have to do that too. An hour so, like, every I, day. Yeah, I know it's crazy. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I made sure that like I was stretching in the mornings. I was I was stretching before practice because it, the importance was stress when I saw my idol doing it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Do you have like a stretching routine? Do you follow anything, or do you just go by feel? No, no, no. I, I definitely have a stretching routine. And when I'm at my least flexible, my mom is really helpful in, in getting me in positions. But like when I'm I'm really in the like in the feel of things and I'm I'm more flexible, I have one that I do independently on my own. Are there any favorite stretches that you feel like make the most or maybe have the most carryover to your climbing mobility? Yes. I love the ones where you basically like sit in a drop knee position on the floor. Because I use drop knees a lot, a lot, a lot in my climbing. Can you describe that? A drop knee is basically when you put your foot on a hold and you position your knee towards the floor. So where your center of gravity is is going up, but then your knee is facing down. And what it does is it, it positions you closer to the wall and gets you in to smaller boxes so that you can do some of the harder movements easier. And it puts your hips close to the wall as well. And it's just, it's one of the many tools that climbers use just to get their hips closer to the wall and make moves easier. Right. Um, whether it's toe hooks, heel hooks, all those have served the same purpose, just in different methods. Can you describe what that drop knee stretch looks like on the floor? Sure. Well, you just you put your foot on the floor and then you you drop your knee to the opposite direction of where your head is. Are you sitting? Is your butt on the floor? Yes, you're you're okay. laying down on the floor. Oh, on okay. Your back okay. While while your knees are dropped um, in the opposite position, and then you just sit there for I used to sit there for like ten seconds or fifteen seconds. Okay. Um, or longer depending on like, and when I'm in isolation, I'll probably do it for longer because I want to make sure I'm as like limber as possible. But in training, I'll probably do it for shorter, like 15 seconds. Okay. And that that really helps me because um, I, I just find myself using that method a lot because I've always been a taller climber and it's always been hard for me to fit in some smaller boxes. But mm. drop knees make fitting in the fitting in those boxes a lot easier. I think I can envision that, but I'm having a little bit of trouble. Um, I wonder if we can find like a photo or a video of that stretch. Oh, I, have, I have so many videos <laughs> and, and <laughs> okay. photos of me doing drop knees. As a matter of fact, one of my like I mean more so the, the more the stretch when you're laying on the ground. I, I'm it's hard to envision what that looks like. Yeah. yeah, maybe we can share something in the show notes for people. Forever, one of my most liked photos on Instagram was me doing a split into a drop knee at, um, <laughs> at, at a youth world championships. Uh-huh. And I didn't even know I did it. I, I, I didn't remember doing it, but I saw this photo and I was like, Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> like when they catch that, <laughs> everyone thinks it's so, imp- I thought it was so impressive. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any it's, other, it's, Oh, go ahead. No, it's, I find, I find it's, it's always different when you're the one doing the thing that, People think it's impressive because you're thinking like, well, like, I mean, I do this all the time. I guess within my ability, it's not that impressive. But like, <laughs> I can see like from other people's perspective, like that, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of photo that makes me want to get up and stretch for an hour. I'm like, damn, <laughs> I got some work to do. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's, I, I don't know. Yeah, cause it's just like, yeah, you, you lay, you're laying on the ground like, and hmm, I guess, is that called a plank? When you lay flat on the ground with your back on the ground? 
With your back on the ground, okay. Yeah, you just you lay flat on the ground. On your back. You yep, on your back. You flat on the ground on your back. You take your foot and you bring it to waist level, and then you drop your knee flat to the ground. So basically, it looks like a chicken wing. Okay, and you just do one side at a time. I'll do the left side, then I'll do the right side, then I'll do both at the same time. Oh, whoa. Okay. I imagine you have to work up to both at the same time. Yeah. Basically, when you do both at the same time, your legs look like a W Okay. while your back is flat on the ground. Okay. Okay. Got it. Does that make sense? Is that easier to visualize? Yeah, that helps a lot. Yeah. I'll try to find something and put it in the show notes for people. But yeah, that's definitely helpful. Are there any other stretches that you feel like have the most carryover to your climbing? Um, I mean, I've always done stretches like the splits. I mean, although I'm so tall that I rarely actually have to get into a split position on the wall, but I do find that it helps with just like getting my hips closer to the wall. Because even though maybe I'm not in a full split, I am in a position where like I can, the more flexible you are, the better climber you are. Mm. Because ultimately it makes a huge difference between approaching a hold where your chest is a foot away from the wall versus when your chest is an inch away from the wall. Mm. Because then the hold is closer, you're much more controlled approaching it, and you just have a higher probability of actually grabbing that hold. Mm-hmm. That's why you see like for a lot of female climbers, the best female climbers in the world are incredibly flexible like even watching like ashima shirashi climb like she she's one of the best examples i can give because she her hips are more open than anybody else's on the competition circuit yeah she's just doing the splits all the time right but it, it works to her advantage because she is able to get her hips close to the wall at the drop of a dime like super super quickly and because she's able to do that she makes moves that are hard for others drastically easier Mm -hmm. is there anything else that you've adapted from adam from adam i think that one of the biggest things i could adapt from adam is just persistence and just kind of approaching climbing from a scientific perspective where it's if I need to, if these are the tools I need, or this is the climbs that I'll need, then this this is how I need to train in order to achieve that goal. So whether it's for competitions and making sure he's focusing on like his footwork or his flexibility and, and all these tools, or whether he's approaching a really, really hard climb. And so he's making sure that he like is training finger strength, like really, really specifically and really, really hard. And, and also just like just being a, a fit, all-around climber because i feel like a lot of the times when you look at the best climbers in the world you recognize them for a specific talent mm. or niche that they're good at like we all know that daniel woods is really good at tension climbing we all know that dave graham is really strong fingers or ashima is really flexible but i feel like rarely do you find climbers that are just all around good at most of the tools that you need in climbing. Mm. And I feel like Adam accomplishes that really well, which is why he's the best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that inspiration carry over to like different facets of climbing for you? Like, are you interested in trying to become an all rounder climber? And, you know, Adam is so accomplished in competition and bouldering and sport climbing, and he's sent the freaking Dawn wall. Does that kind of thing interest you at all? Or, or do you, 
prefer to be more focused in your climbing? I feel like considering all the ambitions I have in life right now, that <laughs> it'd be easier for me to just stick with comps and then, <laughs> and then do outdoor climbing when I can. I really enjoy that because, I mean, as a full-time college student, as a founder of a nonprofit, I just feel like my purpose is best fulfilled helping others. Mm. And when I'm doing that, I feel like I feel the most complete as a person and as a climber and so i feel like maybe once i'm older and i have less things on my plate then absolutely i would love to venture in other disciplines of the sport but for now i'm, I'm pretty good where i am okay cool i've got one more question with adam andrea i would love to ask you about climbing pace adam is one of the more aggressive faster climbers that i've ever seen at least climbing at a professional level and he's really known for that. And you, I've heard you kind of make fun of yourself or joke about how slow you climb. And I'm curious about that. Do you feel like, I, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like you have a, a pace that works best for you? Or have you experimented with that? Do you have any ambitions of working on climbing faster? Um, I think, no, I have no ambition on climbing faster. <laughs> I like, I like, how, I like how I climb. Cause yeah, I, feel yeah. like, I like to enjoy the experience of the climbing and not just rush through it. Um, I know that at the highest level of competition, like I don't have a choice, especially cause there's only a six minute uh, time limit for, for lead climbing. But I think that my philosophy is if you're, if you're stronger than the climb, then you can climb it however you want. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean i i'm just like yeah i mean i don't know like i i know it's something i definitely do have to work on from a competition perspective but from like outside of competitions like no i i enjoy climbing slower <laughs> that's interesting i want to ask this then do you feel like your climbing pace holds you back at all or do you think it feels like the right fit for you is that like your ideal pace um, I don't think so, because I feel like there are successful climbers in a multitude of styles. You have the atoms who are f much faster, um, and so maybe even some of the men are faster. You, then, I think the best example is looking at even the women. Like, Yanya is much quicker climber. She has really fast twitch muscles, whereas Jiang Kim is slow and methodical. Hmm. But because she's so good at like body positioning and also resting on the wall, like mid route, like her style works for her. Hmm. And I feel like for me, it's always worked because like I may climb slower, but I also have really good endurance and I am good at finding rest and like shaking out on the walls so I don't get like tired. And so I don't think it works against me and in that regard. Mm. Okay. I want to ask a couple listener questions. Um, I've got a mix of stuff from listeners. I actually got quite a few questions for you and I want to ask a couple here and then I'd love to talk about climbing for change. And then there was some questions about that as well. Okay. So this one is from actually this person wanted to be left anonymous and they asked, what is it like being the tallest professional climber out there. We all hear about it and see often where it's hard for short people. I myself complain about this. Does Kai run into any situations in which he thinks, damn, I wish I were shorter? If so, how often? 
all the time all the time it's i think i think about it more especially when i haven't been stretching as much hmm. because as soon as i fall out of my stretching routine i am quickly reminded of all the boxes that were set with me with my size not in mind not the feet that i can't use <laughs> and i find that when, you, when you're in a, a competition a lot of the times like you're setting for the median height. You're setting for a five eight or five nine climber, mm. and so I often have to find solutions that are just out out of the box, literally and figuratively. And so, yeah, I think that it's a similar struggle whether you're on either end of the spectrum. Mm. If you're not in the middle, you're going to have unique problems. So I may not, I may be able to skip past certain sequences, but then there are times where I can't reach certain feet. And so I don't have a choice but to do a harder out-of-the-box sequence to get the job done. Because the feet are like too high and bunchy. Yeah, the feet are too high or the position that the root setter is perfectly planned in their brain to get you in a certain body position, I don't fit in. So now instead of my hips being in one position, my hips are in another and I really have to bear down on these holes that weren't meant to be bared down on. <laughs> Interesting. How does that experience compare outside do you have the same experience outside or are there more options um i find that outside is different because often i will take bits and pieces of beta whether from the people i'm climbing with or like a video that i'm watching and then i'll just do my own thing and then typically there is always like a solution that i could work around i don't think i've really like encountered a bulk climb where i was like i just can't do it because i'm too um i'm too tall hmm. Keep in mind, like, I also have a style, and so I'm not going to try certain climbs. <laughs> but the ones that I try, like, typically, like, I can I can find my way around it. There, there are definitely some climbs I'm sure are just nails harder. I just haven't really run across those as much. Hmm. It might be, like, a, a subconscious bias that I have. I don't really <laughs> like, like – I'm really tall, big, so I don't really like climbing on really small, like, holds. Uh, so I'm not okay. going to climb a crimp rail or anything i'm going to climb something that like is more comfortable for me <laughs> okay yeah fair enough so this is a question from joe and we've maybe already answered it we talked about stretching and you also talked about your creativity and, and finding your own way but joe asks he says i'm six five and i wonder if kai has any general rules or beta for climbing through scrunchy moves that you can't reach past any other thoughts um, on that no, it's, just, it's flexibility is just, you just, you can't work around it. If, if you're tall and you're not maximizing your flexibility and then you're at a massive disadvantage, hmm. you, you're going to have to focus a lot more on stretching, on making sure that you're good at finding just different techniques. I just feel like you have, you have to like maximize your toolbox and be good at whether it's toe hooking, heel hooking, drop kneeing finding other options to work around the sequence. Because if you're not in that perfect middle range, then you're going to have to find a unique way to solve boulders. Mm. That's just how it is. Cool. Thanks. That's super helpful. Let's get into climbing for change. When we talked a few weeks ago, you were telling me, I was kind of asking like how that came to be and what your vision for it was. And you were you were telling me about some of the other nonprofits that you had worked with or worked for in the past or partnered with and um, that you had observed 
a lot of pitfalls in those other organizations and that you started your own thing because you were hoping to fill in some gaps. So I'd, I'd love to have you elaborate on that. Like maybe first off, what was some of your early volunteer experience and, and um, what were some of those organizations that brought you into a uh, nonprofit world? Uh, absolutely. I mean, growing up in the sport, I was, I was always the, the only African-American in a space and one of few, if not the only minority in the room, in the room, whether it was at a competition, whether it was at an outdoor crack or just any outdoor industry function at all. And with me and my mother growing up in the sport, we recognized firsthand a lot of the barriers of entry that other people of color have to encounter, whether it's the high cost of equipment, um, the time you have to have to be able to go outside, um, the, the stigma of the spaces that you're entering and how a lot of these famous outdoor areas are just in rural America and in places that have really regressive perspectives on race. Hmm. And people comfortably trot around memorabilia that represents racism, whether it's Confederate flags, whether it's swastikas or or anything that just makes you uncomfortable entering these spaces. Then you encounter climbing walls where climbs are named after slave owners and derogatory racist terms and in climbing areas which just name things that are incredibly insensitive. And you're like, well, who will want to be in this space that falls under these categories? <laughs> but this, for me... We were able to work around it, luckily, and I was able to open so many doors for myself. And I feel like as a successful athlete and as somebody with a platform that I have, the biggest disservice to my legacy I could ever do is not leave those doors open for people to come after me hmm. and make this sport more inviting for people who look like me. It helped make me become who I am. And I realized that there are a lot of people who have it a lot worse than me, who the barriers of entry are just too great to overcome. And I volunteered at a lot of diversity and inclusion organizations in the outdoor industry trying to push these sports, whether it's Boys and Girls Club, whether it's Outer Bound, whether it's um, I, I went to South Africa for a few weeks uh, in the summer in 2019 to work with these kids who came from war-torn, just crazy backgrounds of violence and poverty and were able to find release and peace in the outdoors. And from these experiences, I learned that this is just universally having access to the outdoors, having access to these sports could be a transformative experience for these kids. But from my experience, I also saw so many things that were holding these programs back from having their impact maximized, whether it was funding, whether it was exposure, whether it was partnerships with bigger organizations that had similar goals. And I wanted to make sure that these organizations had everything that they could so they could recruit as many kids as they could and, and ultimately just change the sport. So when everything was going on with the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of these organizations were making pledges to to do better and to diversify the industry, I was their first call because I'm really the only person of color at this level of the sport. Um, sorry, I'm the only African-American at this level of the sport, for sure. 
And I could tell from a lot of these conversations that they had good intentions, but they just didn't really know what they were doing or didn't know how to do the work or they were making mistakes along the way that were costly. So I was like, okay, I think that I can use the connections that I've built in this industry and my knowledge of the organizations that I've worked with to kind of create an organization that bridges bridges these gaps and maximizes the impact of the diversity and inclusion work. Hmm. So tell me about Climbing for Change. What exactly is it and what exactly do you hope to do? So Climbing for Change um, started at the end of July and our organization's purpose is just providing opportunities and access uh, to the outdoors and to the climbing industry. And so we work with gyms, work with organizations, work with grassroots DEI groups just to see where we could fit in and to fill in these gaps to make sure that these companies are getting what they need and that they're serving these underserved communities. And so we've actually recently worked on a project in Atlanta where we were able to partner with One Climb, which is an organization started by Kevin Jorgensen that builds climbing walls and recreation centers and and partners with the community. We were able to partner with the mayor of the city of College Park, who reached out to me and told me she loved my story and wanted to work with me. And we were also able to partner with Stone Summit Climbing, which is a major climbing chain in the area, uh, to basically build a, a climbing wall and a rec center in College Park and also provide transportation from the city to the climbing gym Stone Summit to provide after-school programs and just opportunities for them to really get into the sport. Hmm. And that's just one example of us being able to connect organizations, connect resources to maximize the impact in these communities. Hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. And we I don't think we mentioned this earlier, but you actually are living in Atlanta now. Yes. So, yeah, I'm currently living in Atlanta. <laughs> and is that the uh, gym that you train at? Um, currently, yes. The gym that I'm training at is Stone Summit. Yeah. That's cool. That's really neat to be able to be there day in, day out and be closer to that whole process and see all that happen. That's really neat. Mm-hmm. We also, with Trauming for Change, we want to be able to give opportunities to individuals too, not just organizations. And so we're, we want to provide scholarships so that people of color who don't have the means to to venture out to attend competitions, to explore these different areas, can get those opportunities. So mm. we want to provide NGA memberships and get training so that um, more people of color can become guides in the industry. We want oh, to provide cool. scholarships so that um, kids can afford to go to competitions or afford to go on these huge adventures so they can become role models in their sport and inspire other people in their communities to want to take it up as well. Last we spoke, you mentioned that uh, some of those scholarship programs might be coming as early as January. What's the status with that stuff now? We still are planning on doing this this month. Uh Um, I mean, our launch has been delayed a little bit because just, well, A, COVID. COVID gets in the way of everything. (laughs) (laughs) And also just we need a few documents signed off on before we can launch. But absolutely, Mm. it's coming very soon within the next couple of weeks. Very cool. This is a listener question from Nathan. So he asked, 
a, a few questions. First, what inspired you to start a nonprofit? And we just covered that. Uh, he also asked, what challenges have you faced in developing it? Um, well, basically, we are a two-man show. <laughs> is me and my mom yeah <laughs> yes and i i i will basically set up the list that needs to be done and organize everything and be like okay mom i need you to do this i need you to do this please and she <laughs> begrudgingly has helped me in a lot of ways and also i mean my mother has a phd in operations and management and so she has experience with major projects and so she's been extremely helpful in helping me just think about all the the new wants things that um, I don't have a lot of experience in and also just helping me learn how to manage just the responsibilities of my organization. Um, another thing is, is we started this organization at the height of the civil rights movement and there was a lot of buy-in and a lot of interest. And so for us, we just want to make sure that we're getting consistent donations. Mm. We're getting continued interest. And when the last hashtag has died down and the racial tension is calming a bit, that people are still invested in building these communities. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so that feel like that's one of the biggest obstacles that we worry about in the future. On that note, where can people learn more about climbing for change and where can they donate? So, you can follow Climbing for Change on Instagram um, at climbing the number four change. And you can also check out more information at www.climbingthenumber4change.org. Okay. And there is where you can get updates on our scholarship programs. We're working on a DEI connections page where we are organizing the organizations across the country in your area so that you can look it up and find a, a group or an organization that best meets your needs. And um, making sure that you guys stay updated on what we have coming up next. Oh, that's awesome. I will link to all that in the show notes for people. This is another question for Nathan. He asks, what are the benefits of having your mom as a coach? And what are some of the difficulties? Well, for sure, the biggest benefit is she does not climb. And because of that, she has all the time in the world to just play me. I am her only focus when she comes in the gym. <laughs> and it's nice. that Actually, I feel like I attribute that as the biggest thing for the reason why I have so much endurance, because I have a dedicated Belair. Like, she'll be yeah, on her feet. It's amazing. She'll be on her feet for like an hour straight as I lead climb, like without touching the ground, doing laps. And she'll be like, yeah, I mean, I luckily she doesn't mind so much. <laughs> I mean, she complains, but she still shows up. So we're, so we're, we're good. Um, I mean, she's my mother. And so like anybody, especially as I grew up as a teenager, I mean, it didn't always go the smoothest. But I mean, we, we, we obviously we knew the goals that I had set out and she was always motivated enough to help me achieve them. So mm. I'm just really appreciative that she comes to the gym with me all the time and believes me. Yeah, that's awesome. Does she still work? Is she, I forget. Is she a professor? Yeah, so she is um, a full-time college professor at Fayetteville State University, the city that I'm from. Uh, Yeah, university, or HBCU in the city that I'm from. Okay. And so, yeah, that's what she does. (laughs) And, yeah, I mean, she's more than just a belayer, though. I mean, she's Hmm. a chauffeur. ATM for the longest, um, a, a therapist, um, 
She, she yeah, emotional support system. She <laughs> she holds so many hats for sure, and she's just like my main support system in my climbing. So, <laughs> I I couldn't be here or do any of this without her. Mm. Seriously, I was asking you about a recent road trip that you did, kind of out west, and you climbed at the Hurricane, and I think you climbed at Potosi and some crags around Vegas, and you traveled with your mom. And it sounds like a lot of the time she'd hike up to the cliff and belay you. But then I thought this was actually quite funny. There was a few days, it sounds like you were hanging out with Drew Mack and got to connect with him and climb with him. And so your mom was kind of off the hook as belayer duty for a few days. Oh my goodness. What is, uh, what's like the ideal circumstance or the ideal day for your mom you think when you're on a road trip like that like what does she love to do if she gets to be off the hook from belaying well if she, well if she knows beforehand that she won't have to climb or sorry that she won't have to belay she she wouldn't come but if she knows that she <laughs> but if she thinks that maybe a day or so that she might be able to get a break then for sure she'll like stay at home but also she doesn't mind coming either because she likes to be able to watch me or film me it's nice having a third person there just to to be able to have a another set of eyes to see how i can be better Hmm. um because she i mean she is even though she has no climbing experience per se she is my main coach Mm -hmm. like she's watched me climb every day since i was seven years old and so (laughs) if anybody knows my climbing it's my mom wow Final question from Nathan. He asks, do you think you'll ever get into trad climbing? How about big walls? Um, I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> kind of thought you'd say that. I'm not that interested. And also, I <laughs> I mean, I told you guys at the top of the, the show that I have ADHD and I lose focus really easily. And I feel like there's no worse time to lose focus than when I'm having to place my own gear on the wall. And so I'm just so nervous that like, I'm just going to like place it wrong and not think about it and then just fall to my death. So I'm like, I don't just, I don't trust. In, in short, I don't trust myself enough to do it. Maybe like if I like have some more practice and experience, like I'll, I'll think about it. But as of now, like I'm, I'm good. Does it sound fun to you? No, not yeah, really. Yeah. No, it sounds way scarier than it does sound fun. Okay. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I don't, I'm like, I don't get a thrill out of just like, like the possibility of things not working. I'm like, shoot, like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I, mean I, I don't know. Like me, me putting my life at risk, like, isn't, is not appealing. <laughs> I'm just like, shoot, like I'm, I am a, a black man in America. All I need to do is talk back to the police to have my life. I do not need to go out <laughs> and, and test gear to do that. <laughs> uh, great answer. So that Hercave trip was really impressive. I think you climbed a 14B and a 14C in the same week that you were there. And uh, I mean, it's not a super straightforward climbing style. I found that that cave what time i've spent in there it's kind of weird it's a little tricky as far as cave climbing goes um it's funny you you say that too because the style of climbing in that cave is very conducive to competition climbing so like a lot of the the funkiness that you're probably referring to are things that i have to do all the time in 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 the gym yeah so like it was very that's why it was for me it was like oh this is perfect oh nice 
I had no I had no issues in that cave. Okay. Like the style suit me perfectly. Well, and you've already talked about projecting a little bit and why you don't have a ton of interest in it, but what about outdoor goals? Like are you do you aspire to climb 515 someday? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I think that for me, that would be a 2021 goal of mine. For me, it's, it's always seemed like a grade that was just like so. I mean, I know that it's not far off from like my ability. Like, I feel like I definitely could do 515. It's just been something where like it's a it's a grade that I feel like I would have to spend quite a bit of time on. And there's not that many in the U.S. I mean, there there's been a few that have been established in like the last year or two, but before then, you had really limited options maybe like jaws in massachusetts or jumbo love but that's about it really and so and i would have to travel overseas and me being in high school at the time it was like well it's, it's a lot of effort and planning that will go into me achieving that grade so it was easier for me to stick to the gym but but now that like with covid and and with me kind of like stepping back from the intense schedule that I used to have with competitions, I definitely would want to do climb 515 for sure. I just haven't, I've just never put the effort into doing one. Cool. I'm excited to uh, read the article someday that talks about Kai sending his first 515. <laughs> I know that'd be so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Do you have, are, are there any that are especially inspiring to you that you'd be excited to try? Um, sure. I think that Carlo Traversi just established a new 515 yeah. in Lake Tahoe called Empath. And I think that that climb looks really cool because it is, I mean, I like pinches and I like tensioning movement and it, it looks really, really good. So I think I would love to try that one. Awesome. Okay. I think there's a video of that. I'll link to it in the show notes, but for people that haven't seen it, it's not super steep. It's granite. It looks like really pinches and compression and it's, it's a really striking line yeah I, it looked really cool i watched the video of the first and second ascent with carlo and daniel so i, I really liked the way it looked awesome i'll link to both those videos in the show notes this is a question from anna since kai has grown up in the spotlight i'm curious how he views his private life versus public life and if he struggles to find a balance um Interesting, too, because I one of the benefits, well, I guess there's an up and downside to this, but I grew up in an inner city area and I'm very used to this being like not in the climbing universe all the time. And so I always have this split between me going to the gym or me going to competition, hanging out with those friends and then going back to school and going back to my normal life, and hanging out with those friends, because like they very rarely converged. I mean, I didn't grow up in an area that had an established climbing culture at all. Mm. And a lot of my friends didn't find that appealing. And a lot of my friends are people of color. And a lot of them saw that as like a white people sport and something that's weird because it's just no representation. And so I just was so comfortable splitting the two that I felt like I've always had like a pretty big divide between my personal life and my climbing life. Although like I I have a lot of friends in climbing as well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm curious, do you feel that shifting? Like what does the demographic of the gym look like in Atlanta where you climb? Well, Atlanta is a, a, a area with a lot of black people, so I I do see more black people in the gym, more people of color, it's much more diverse in in here. And I think that has 
something to do with not just the area, but also this huge boom of just mega climbing gyms in mm. inner city areas. Mm-hmm. When I first started climbing, that was just not the case. It didn't exist. If you wanted to get into the sport or you wanted to go to a gym, you had to know someone who knew where to look. And they were not going to be shiny Waltopia walls with cafes inside of them and gym equipment. Uh, uh, fitness areas in them. They're going to be like renovated garages, renovated warehouses. You're going to, it's going to be a little bit um, sketchy. Hmm. But um, ever since, I guess, Stone Summit was actually the first to do it. Ever since Stone Summit opened and it kind of established this mega gym culture, now you'll see huge climbing gyms in inner city areas that just didn't exist when I started. And so because of that, like that's that's a big step that's been helping diversify the sport for sure. Hmm. This is a question from Sarah. She writes, I really appreciate you speaking out about eating disorders, systemic racism, and diversity in climbing because they're such important conversations for folks to hear. If you could get every young climber to internalize one message, what would it be? That's a hard question. <laughs> wow, just one message? Okay, I think for me, um, one message I would say is just be true to yourself and listen to your body. I feel like when I was a kid, I was made fun of constantly in school for being interested in a sport that none of my peers liked. Um, the box was so small for people of color in our community that we always thought that if you weren't playing basketball or football or a sport that you could watch on TV or ESPN, that it wasn't valid. Hmm. And I grew up kind of not appreciating my own body type and my own talents. And so one thing I would say is that making sure you stick to your guns and pursue your passions, regardless of what others say, and also listening to your body and, and knowing how to, when to say no, and when to know when enough is enough. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. Really good answer. <laughs> Put you on the spot with that one. <laughs> I was nervous. I was like, oh my goodness. I <laughs> just, yeah, you, you just got to know, you just got to know the limits of your body. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right. I have some uh, rapid fire questions that I'd love to ask you. These are, these are more just pretty fun. And then a couple more uh, in-depth or deeper questions. But, okay, some rapid-fire questions. What was the last meal that you ate? The last meal that? Ooh, I, it was a Greek salad and uh, half of a turkey bravo sandwich from Panera Bread. It was really good. And I, and I got boba from a Japanese pot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> was that your pre- training session meal yeah well i didn't eat it all at once i ate some of it before my practice and some of it after but yeah okay (laughs) okay what is one of your favorite treat meals or desserts um one of my favorite treat meals hmm so I really like Asian food. You will catch this trend. But I really love those like Asian spots that have like the delicious uh, Japanese desserts, like the waffles and the ice cream and the like the 
gosh, I forgot what it's called, like the shaved ice. Mm. Um, Those are so good. I love those spots. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also like just really like uh, brownies. Okay. (laughs) If you were, uh, if you just like sent your project and you were driving home, what would you stop and get for a treat? Okay, this is a completely different answer, but anyone who knows me knows that I've been obsessed with hot Cheetos since I was a child. Hot Cheetos? I would probably get a bag of hot Cheetos, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. You, it's so funny because <laughs> for years, if um, like I would win nationals and every photo of me, whether it was on the podium, whether it was people taking <laughs> photos of me, my, my face would be red and my fingers would be red because immediately when the comp was finished, my mom would have a bag of hot Cheetos ready for me in celebration <laughs> and I would eat them as soon as I untied from the wall. <laughs> It sounds like she got it ahead of time. What if you didn't win? <laughs> Just eat then them. it would be like a consolation. consolation. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Regardless, it was going to be eaten. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. What is your favorite album or song right now? My favorite album or song. Um, okay, here's one answer to your question. So for me, I, I had a, a ritual for years where before I entered a round of competition, I would have to wake up to the song King of Rock by Run DMC. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this, I had this tradition like probably like from the minute I started climbing up till I was maybe 14. But every comp, I would wake up and I would have to dance to King of Rock. And hilarious story. One year... I I did it and I I slipped on the bed actually and fell and I broke the banister oh. that was supporting the phone <laughs> and so I had this big bandaid on my elbow like going into competition <laughs> someone would be like what happened I'm like oh I I fell <laughs> I was just too I was too embarrassed to tell them like the real story uh, <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I will link to that one in the show notes for people. Oh, and I, I think my, my, my another uh, song that I just listened to, but this is like, okay, so it's not a new one, but it's one that's like a staple in my playlist is uh, Dirt Off Your Shoulder by Jay-Z. Okay. And it just gets me so hype. Like, it gets me so hype. Like, oh, the lyrics are so hype. I love it. <laughs> Perfect. I was going to sing a bit of it, but I'm like, it's not, it's not child appropriate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Noted. <clears throat> what emoji do you find yourself using the most? What emoji? Yeah. Oh, that's an easy question to answer. Hold on. <laughs> All I gotta do is click the button. Um, I find I guess the crying laughing emoji is the one I use the most. Uh-huh. Because and I feel like it's pretty universal because like you can use it when something's actually funny. You can use it when like a moment is awkward, like you're saying something kind of controversial, but you like want to lighten the the lows. You're like, ha <laughs> like ha ha ha. You know? Yeah. Like it's like I don't agree with you, ha. Huh? <laughs> It yeah. like it makes it seem like a less threatening message. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely the crying laughing emoji. Good answer. That's a versatile one. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is a more serious question. What is something that you've been feeling especially grateful for lately? Family. 
Hmm. Family for sure. Um, that was part of your move to Atlanta, right? Absolutely. Hmm. I mean, the, the health of my family in this pandemic has just been a huge priority. We've been taking, I've been taking care of a family member who's been sick. And so to, I mean, we just celebrated her birthday. And so just having everyone that I value in my life close to me at the moment is really important to me. Hmm. Very cool. Good answer. And what are you most excited about right now? What's got you fired up? Oh, climate for change for sure. Cool. Especially considering we're about to launch all these projects and our, our first one site project is about to launch here in Atlanta. The grand opening is at the end of this month. Okay. And so I am super stoked about it. <laughs> like I said earlier, I find myself having like fulfilling my purpose and being the happiest when I'm helping other people. And so to anticipate like the smiles of the kids that we're going to be working with <laughs> or the people who I can be helping in my community in the industry, it just makes me really excited and happy. Very cool. Very exciting. So we've already talked about climbing for change and the website. And of course you're on Instagram. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Um, you've got your blog. I'll link to that and I'll link to the reflections on my climbing article. Are there any other places where people can connect with you or where you're active on the internet? Um, no, honestly, like literally Instagram and then climate for change website. Those are the the most important places to look. Okay. I put everything on Instagram. I probably should like put less on my, my Instagram, <laughs> but, but I get bored. And because I just have like people at my fingertips, I'll just ask random questions on my stories. And I'm like, just happy that they're not sick of me yet. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I mean, you got to be able to share your photos of your Halloween costume with somebody, so it's perfect. Exactly. I, it's so funny. Today, I just put on my story, because I was clothes shopping this morning, and I was like, who's going to see this? Nobody's <laughs> going to see this outfit. Like, I'm literally going to just wear it around the house in, in the mirror, and then I was like, you know what? Somebody's going to see this. You guys are going to see this. I'm sorry. And it's, I feel like I've been so much more active on social media in COVID because I can't can't be around my friends mm. and just be in, in social settings. And so it's like, I'm going to have to interact with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, yeah, you are very active on there and I definitely recommend people go on there and follow you. So they can see your, your outfits among many other things and <laughs> ask you more <laughs> questions if they have them. Um, Kai. It's so funny. I feel like I, like you would think that as a climber, all my photos would be just climbing videos and like <laughs> workout stuff. And it's like, that's so not the case. True. Like, yeah. You, like you've got a lot of the interest. Climbing stuff is like a minority. Like, <laughs> like I'll, I'll try to balance it out. Like if I do two posts that are like, like political or um, like an outfit that I'm wearing or like however I'm feeling, I'm like, okay, like it's time. I should probably post a on photo. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. I mean, every human is complex. We all have so many different aspects to our lives and interests. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool that you're willing to share all of it. Um, Kai, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been an absolute blast. And I really appreciate what you're doing in the world 
through Climbing for Change and, I mean, your willingness to write that blog post about uh, your experience with with restricted eating and what you've learned from that. I mean, it's an incredible gift for people and it's not easy to do. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. And I really, really appreciate you making the time today. This is super fun. Thank you. And I just, I've always just wanted to help other people. And so for me, I felt if I shared this experience and if only one person could relate to it, then I feel like that I'm helping someone else deal with issues that I had to struggle with in the past. I don't, I just feel like the the worst feeling that anyone can have is to feel alone. Hmm. And so I want to make sure that like someone can relate to this experience and hopefully better themselves because of it. Awesome. Is there anything else that you want to say that we haven't touched on? No, I've been talking for an hour and a half, so no. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think I, I think I've probably said enough. <laughs> for now (laughs) for now i mean other than you know like if you guys want to help climbing for change you can go on the website and donate hell yeah Um, donations are really important and they help so that i can help as many people as possible yeah very cool or i guess we can help as many people as possible Awesome. Well, Kai, again, I know it's it's getting late over there. This has been super fun. Really appreciate it. And I look forward to maybe we can do it again sometime. I'd love to I'd love to talk to you again. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. <laughs> and uh best of luck launching your sponsorship program. And I hope that first um that first live event goes really well and you see those kids' smiles yourself. Yeah, I'm so excited. I'm going to be a nervous wreck and be like, (laughs) everything's going to have to be perfect. (laughs) All right, Kai. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. If you want to help out Climbing for Change, I put a link to their donation page in the show notes. You can make a one-time donation or sign up to support them monthly. You can find the donation link along with links for everything else we talked about over at thenuggetclimbing.com. Or you can go through the Climbing for Change website at climbingthenumber4change.org. Once again, that's climbingthenumber4change.org. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. We got the right stuff. We put the hammer right down. Wanna be like us? Look, you better stick around. If you want it, you gotta prove it. Like we do it. Like we do it. Room with your hips until you don't stop when the clock hits set. You've been learning and you're earning all of those hours you can freak out. One in a million, gonna shine bright and you never go dim. Sing it one, two, three, four. Cause, cause, cause. No one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Cause no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Cause no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Cause no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. We got the right stuff. We put the hammer right down. Wanna be like us? You better stick around. If you
like we do it. 